0: Today we're
1: going to meet a real what self healing really embodies is the reality that we all are our own, you know, kind of best expert. It is only us who can truly know what works for us and what doesn't work for us. Once I began to understand how our mind is connected to our body and how, for me, I was housing all of this trauma in my body that at this point was causing my body to shut down and lose consciousness. Then I began to peel back all of that layers to really see um how separate and how disconnected my life and my choices had become, and then of course to begin the holistic journey back um into my authentic self.
0: Welcome to Helsrevolutionen. Det är så roligt att just du hittar till oss. Det här är ju podden för dig som vill stärka din livsresa och din hälsoresa. Karina Nundstedt heter jag, jag är förläggare och producent. Och idag ska vi ju få möta en riktig världsstjärna, eller hur Maria?
2: Ja Karina, det var ju du som hittade författaren Dr. Nicole, Nicole Perra på Bessalelisterna. En psykolog som utvecklat en ny behandlingsmetodik som kopplar samman Fysisk, psykisk och andlig hälsa. En holistisk, psykologisk metod. Och det är oerhört spännande tankar. Jag heter Maria Borelius, är biolog och vetenskapsjournalist. Och vad tänker du om det här med att koppla ihop kropp, själ, andlighet? Vad, vad får du för tankar?
0: Ja, men det, för mig känns det 100 procent rätt det är att separera. Ibland kan man kanske göra det om det är liksom små saker om man får... Ett getingstick, vad vet jag. Det går, det går ju att separera. Men vi är ju hela personer och det är ju märkligt att det här inte har skett tidigare. Men just nu ser ju vi i podden väldigt många tecken på just det här mer holistiska synsättet. Mm. Och Nicole Perra är en pionjär och nu kommer då hennes bok How to do the work- Läk dig själv eh, har kommit ut på svenska nyligen och,
2: och eh, väldigt många är ju glada över mm. det. Vi har läst den bägge två tycker jättemycket om den. Och hennes tankar handlar om att man kan lära sig identifiera hur gamla trauman, gamla mönster så att säga påverkar ens kropp och själ. Och sen genom en serie konkreta steg läka sig själv. Alltså med det menar hon liksom som jag uppfattar att... Mera leva autentiskt och vara den man vill vara snarare än att mm. bara gå upp på den här gamla trista autopiloten. <laughs> och lämna destruktiva mm. tankar och handlingar som ju kan äta glädje och fysisk hälsa. Så vi är ja. jättenyfikna på Nicole Lopera och, och nu går vi direkt till Arizona.
3: Ready to pop the question?
0: Ja, nu har eh, serie 6 köksmaskinen fått eh, jobba på här ett tag. Och eh, det har blandats ihop eh, till en perfekt liten eh, smulsmet här. De innehåller havregryn, smör, bovetemjöl, bakpulver, havssalt, eh, citronsest, ingefära, blötlagda Earl Grey teblad. Och sen kallt och och honung- och till sist kaka och nibs. Annie fattar. Det här kommer att bli så himla gott.
2: Ja, men det här är så kul. Och min mormor hade ju tyckt att det här var fantastiskt. Hon var ju... Alla de här ingredienserna och det här med, med ett litet bra kex- och en kopp te, det var liksom väldigt mycket hon. Jag tror att hon drack 16 koppar te varje dag. Och just tekex var liksom lite specialitet ja. för henne.
0: Det jag uppskattar särskilt med serie 6- nu när jag har bakat med den några gånger- det är till exempel... omköksmaskinen
2: Lycka till. Okay, I would like to welcome you Nicole Perra, also known as the holistic psychologist. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me Maria, I appreciate it. And recently your best-selling book How to Do the Work came out in Swedish and I would like to thank you for taking the time to meet us at Health Revolution, Hälsorevolutionen. Where do we find you today?
1: Um, currently, I am physically located um, in the States here in Arizona, living and healing and doing all the things and putting out the work. And I'm so glad and honored that you are also resonating with with it. I am. I am truly.
2: So I'd like to ask you, what is holistic psychology compared to the more conventional forms of psychotherapy?
1: Absolutely. And this for me was a huge um, foundational, I'd say, transition in terms of how I think about, you know, my experience of being a human and of course how I offer um, others tools. So if we really just want to simplify it really traditionally in most of the programs here in the States as well, um, we kind of take a shoulders up approach where the goal of a psychologist and, you know, the work done in many of the treatment rooms is in the mind if we really want to separate it out. And of course, I'm very much a proponent of how powerful our minds can be and I dedicate an entire chapter in the book called The Power of Belief um, and how incredibly impactful these deep-rooted beliefs can be, again, which originate in our mind. However, for me, in terms of holistic, we're leaving out one of the biggest parts of the human experience, which is the body itself, so from the shoulders down. And so really simply a definition of holistic to me is kind of the unity of or the interconnectedness of our entire being, our mind, our body. And I'm of the belief that there's a undefinable essence spirit soul however we want to define it for ourselves but essentially the uniqueness that makes me me nicole and you maria and karina all different beings so holistic psychology really honors the wholeness of our being as opposed to that older model which really just looked at us from the top up Mm -hmm.
2: your whole idea is to support people overcome destructive thoughts and behaviors to talk about people getting stuck how do you see the link between the physical and the mental emotional health? What kind of image do you make out of that?
1: Yeah. So if we want to, you know, if we want to think about even the mind itself, um, the mind is a function of our physical organ of the brain. Um, and probably this this might be a... a, a Metaphor. I don't know what the what the word is, but listeners might have heard the language use: Neurons that wire together fire together. And if we really want to simplify that, we have all of these cells and all of these neurons in our brain. And the more literally they fire, they form into networks. So when we talk about being stuck, we're really talking about the physiology that is in our brain of these neural networks of habits, patterns, thoughts, feelings that we've experienced in our body that we've repeated. Some of us probably from the the moment we were born so frequently and so often that they actually do become the neural networks of what we commonly refer to as our autopilot. Meaning if we don't pay attention, and many of us pay very little attention to our day-to-day choices, we're very habitual creatures, if we just kind of woke up and let the day happen as it always does, we would probably see many of the same habits and patterns with very little thought. Very little effort even. And that's a really great example of the power of these neural networks. Something's deciding, right? What am I doing? What am I thinking? How am I operating within my day? And what's deciding, and again, is all of this hardware that's mapped on to our actual brain um, that's very habitual. And the reality of it is, is as as a human being, we love on some deep level, the habitual, because it's within those habitat patterns, the same things that we think and feel and do every day, that we actually get a false sense of safety. Because our mind, right, can predict what happens next because it's the same thing that's happened next for however long it's been. And according to our subconscious mind, whose primary goal it is one intention and one intention only, it's to keep our organism alive. So when I am an autopilot, my life is still sustained. So in terms of that, anything outside of those pathways are really, really uncomfortable. And that explained a lot of the reason why, and again, this is all mapped onto our biology, why it feels so uncomfortable, why it feels so overwhelming and challenging to change, no matter how much insight or awareness or even Mm -hmm. tools that we have to create that change. Could
2: you give some examples of, what does it mean to get stuck in your autopilot? What kind of behavior would you show, you know, that you don't really like about yourself, but yes. you just get stuck there? What, what are typical examples?
1: We can, the most simple, I think that can come to mind are habits, right? Maybe you want to create a new habit of changing the way you eat or changing the way you move your body, or maybe getting a little bit more sleep at night. Um, we're very, you know, it in those areas. And all of that is wired in to the patterned way that we eat we sleep, Hmm. we move our body or we don't. So we might be someone who very well intentioned is like, I'm going to start to move my body every morning. And before we know it, we're a day or two into this new plan. And whether if we are keeping that intention of moving our body, maybe on day three, we start to feel so uncomfortable or wonder why are Hmm. we doing this? Nothing is changing at all. Um, That is what I call resistance. All of that um, kind of argument that our subconscious puts up to keep us in those familiar patterns and i know a lot mm. of people out there have set many intentions to create new habits that you know would be aimed at creating whatever it is that they want in their life that aren't able to keep mm. them i think another mm. common common one outside of just habits and you know behavioral changes emotional habits, mm. right? Mm. Being so reactive maybe in some moments and creating, you know, pain in ourself and our relationships and, you know, coming to the awareness that, you know, maybe yelling and screaming when I'm mad isn't um, the way that I get my need met in that moment. So again, we might come up with a, a great intention to, to stay calm, to breathe deeply the next time that I'm feeling agitated or upset. Yet again, in that moment, that neural network of that nervous system reaction, of that yelling, of that overwhelming feeling will literally take over. Um, And those Mm. are the moments that I'm really focused on as well, because so many of us feel so much shame when we Mm. don't create the change that we want, and even more so when we're creating pain in ourself and other people. So we leave these moments wondering, why the heck couldn't I you know, stay Mm. calm? And again, the reason often is in our neurobiology, in our body, meaning it's not enough just to say remind ourselves to stay calm in that moment, we have to actually embody, practice, teach our body how to remain calm in that moment or else we're gonna go right back down that old reactive neural network.
2: We're gonna go into those fantastic tools that you are teaching in your book and I've started using some of them myself, uh, actually with great results. But before that, uh, you talk about a breakdown in life when you hit the rock bottom, you feel that you're going to die. A feeling of a metaphorical death can open up for kind of rebirth when you start healing yourself.
1: This is dramatic, but you have experienced this feeling. Would you tell us about it? Absolutely. Um, So for me, it started happening as I was entering in my 30s. And by that point, I had checked a lot of boxes in life. I was ending my clinical training, becoming the psychologist that I had long set out to be for as long as I can remember. I was very fascinated with the mind, so I was wanting to be a psychologist. So here I was living in the city that I decided to live in, which was Philadelphia, my hometown. I was in a partnership. I had a very active social life around me. I had my practice, yet emotionally I felt so unfulfilled, so disconnected, so low that I would actually speak to my partner at that time and, you know, wonder kind of why, why bother? I'm just, I, I, I'm getting nothing. It's so much energy. I feel so depleted, um, going throughout the motions of day-to-day life on the physical side of things. Um, I had for as long as I can remember, had a lot of anxiety, had a lot of digestive issues. Um, and at this point in, in my life, not only was my anxiety really high and my digestion really poor and my sleep really off, I actually started to faint. Um, seemingly out of nowhere, to literally lose consciousness. And at first I got really scared and I wondered what the heck is wrong with me. There's clearly something wrong in my brain. Why am I so low and so depressed and so you know unmotivated and unfulfilled? And what I came to understand is while I was going through the motions and checking all of those boxes that I had described, um, being successful, if you will, in in a lot of the senses of the word, I wasn't doing so from an authentic, embodied, connected place, meaning I had learned, as most of us do, adaptations, roles, ways to deal with the environment that I was brought up in. And in an environment where there was very limited emotional connection, I quite literally learned how to achieve, to succeed, to march my way to checking all of the boxes and in doing so, I was so, I was creating such a disconnection between myself, between my own needs, between my physical body, that I was literally running myself into the ground. And what I then was experiencing into my 30s was the byproduct of living from that disconnected state. And once I began to understand how our mind is connected to our body and how, for me, I was housing all of this trauma in my body that at this point was causing my body to shut down and lose consciousness, then I began to peel back all of that layers to really see um, how separate and how disconnected my life and my choices had become. And then, of course, to begin the holistic journey back um, into my authentic self. Mm -hmm. So
2: you discovered a couple of new tools, and I think it's enormously interesting the way you integrate psychological tools with body tools, with techniques that kind of really take the whole human being into account. And we talk a lot about that in the pod. So the first steps was to take better care of your body. You started meditating, exercising, eating better. What have you kept? What is your daily routine to kind
1: of ground your whole nerve system? The body, Maria, and building a foundational practice of reconnecting with my body was life-changing and still is. Because one of the biggest things that I discovered for me, as is the case for a lot of us, when we're in emotionally overwhelming or physically overwhelming where there's abuse environments in childhood, for a lot of us, because emotions live in our body, when it becomes too much for our nervous system to take or when we don't have... And attuned, a safe caregiver to help us regulate in those overwhelming moments, what Mm. we do is we leave the body to really simplify Mm. it. We disconnect, Mm. we dissociate. I call it the spaceship that I went and lived on. And I went and I disconnected on the spaceship. I imagine probably Mm. early, early on in my childhood, where very overwhelming feelings were left. I was left alone within them, not having an emotionally attuned mother mainly. Mm. Um, So, I shut down and I didn't know it because that autopilot is so strong. It became my autopilot. I was able to march through checking all the boxes in life, but I was doing so from a disconnected place. I wasn't able to attune to my physical body at all because at that early time in that early place, being in my physical body was too overwhelming. It was actually safer Mm. to live life on my spaceship. So For me, Mm. discovering, again, the body, locating it as Mm. part of my healing journey was foundational, but more so what was foundational was beginning to live in my body, integrate a consciousness practice in my body, um, which for me wasn't just a practice of sitting and meditating traditionally like we think of it. It was a practice of learning how to gently stretch my body. Go on a five minute walk around my block and be consciously present to how it is to be in my body when I'm stretching it. What do my muscles feel Mm. like? How about when I'm walking around the block? And to answer your question, for me, keeping that foundational connection between me and my body is is still present today. And so what that looks like is every morning um, when I get up, I try to avoid looking at my phone first thing and I create Mm. space in the beginning part of my day for me. And that's a temptation to go to my phone, to go to work, to go to achievement, right? Yeah. Just like I yeah. used to all of the time. So that big choice in that morning is pivotal. Putting the phone down and in that space, what I usually then do is I make sure mm. that somehow, some way, I'm moving my body. It's not gonna be an hour rigorous workout at the gym. Um, for me this morning, it was a 20 minute YouTube uh, yoga, gentle yoga practice. Um, I popped it on and I was very conscious and intentional, which just meant I was present to my body moving. Um, and now that presence, that connection with my body for me, I travel throughout my day with that. Meaning I don't mm. leave you know, my workout room or the walk around the block and forget that I'm living in a body for the rest of the day, for me, it means consciously paying attention throughout the day, tuning into, well, when is my body telling me it's hungry? You know, what, when might it need to eat? What might it want to eat? Literally learning how to, and this might sound crazy to some listeners, and I know at one point, for me, it, it did. I ate at mm. certain times of the day <laughs> when it was breakfast time, when it was lunch mm. time. I ate what mm. breakfast foods are appropriate or whatever I learned in my childhood was appropriate for breakfast. And again, mm. same went for lunch, for dinner. I had all of these different rules and reasons why I even ate. And I really took me a long time to discover that we live in a unique body. I can actually listen to my body. I can discover that some mornings it might be hungry at 9 a.m., Other mornings, Mm -hmm. it might not be hungry till 11 a.m. And even more so, I can ask and decide, like, You know, what it might want to eat at that time, when it wants to Mm. stop eating. Um, Is it tired? Do my muscles need a break throughout my day? Are they feeling cramped? I do a lot of sitting, especially when I'm working on creative projects Mm, at mm, a computer, mm. meaning checking in with my body throughout the day and saying, you know what, I've been sitting here for a long time. I'm starting to feel really cricked up or, you know, tense. Maybe I get up and I go for a walk. So, body, 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 body um, is a continues to be a foundation of myself of my own journey and it's how often can i check in with my body and allow that to guide me throughout my day
0: may i just say this is so fascinating i, I can just uh, relate to this so, so much and now mm. and i think during the summer we have more opportunities to maybe start new habits and connect to our body and listen to our body and it's uh, it's so important because when you feel that resonance it's like Oh my music, gosh,
1: it's right? it's it's everything. Our body contains so much wisdom and to speak to your point about summer. Um, I discovered such a shift for me. I used to live on the East Coast in the northeast of the United States, and it's it can get cold in the winter. There's a lot of times where it's gray, the sun isn't out. And for me, I noticed a, a big shift um, when I moved out west, where I have access to the sun all year round and I make every intention to get out in that sun. So for a lot of us again, who are bound by geography and by the sun, any season, any moment where we could take um, ourselves outside, be in the ground, put our feet upon the earth. I know a lot of us live in cities, allow the sun to hit our skin. All of those ways nourish our body because our body mm-hmm. is a natural entity. It's very much connected to the natural world around us. And having lived in a city for decades of my life before I more recently moved in the past few, through few years, I know the challenges um, of being connected to the natural earth in some, in some context.
2: So out of these thoughts, you're describing the foundation now with connecting to the body, you have developed something you called holistic psychology, self-healing movement. And that is growing. You have millions of followers on Instagram, on YouTube. It has become a big thing. Why do we need this now?
1: I think what the kind of concept of self-healing really highlights and embodies is the participation of, of the human, right, of the self. And again, I say this seeing both being a clinician in the field and being on the other side, having been, you know, in my own treatment myself, a lot of us have for many different reasons um, and experiences and beliefs, we outsource Um, With this idea that someone knows better than me what I need. And this isn't to minimize the role of seeking helping professionals. I definitely think, and it's been part of my own journey at different times to, you know, have the medical or functional medicine doctor or to, you know, have the therapist or the coach or, you know, the supportive other figure um, to help us along our journey. But I've just seen for so long this habit of outsourcing, meaning minimizing my own self-knowledge, the wisdom that lives in my own body, and just taking someone else's word for it because someone else said so, or because we read a book about it, or because you know my friend up the block said that this worked. So what self-healing really embodies is the reality that we all are our own, you know, kind of best expert. It is only us who can truly know what works for us and what doesn't work for us. And even more so, it's only us that shows up that wakes up every day in this body, right? That wakes up every day in this life experience that we've created around us. And what I would see again, and my question always comes back to even those of us that have all of the supports, um, the clinicians in place, the doctors, you know, the places that we go for an hour or two at a time to get these services, what are we doing when we're home then, when we're on our own, when we're back Right, where all of those autopilot patterns live. So self healing really harnesses again, empowers the self as the holder of the wisdom, and also reminds mm-hmm. us of the importance of that responsibility. Um, that to create change, it's more than just setting the intention, you know, or creating a new thought that yeah, tomorrow I'm going to do something different. It actually means showing up tomorrow and doing that different thing, despite going back to what we we're talking about earlier, how uncomfortable that newness will be because it'll simply be unfamiliar. And I think the why now, I think a lot of us all over the world. And as soon as I went on Instagram, I was really met with how global um, the resonance was with some of these concepts that I was talking about. Um, not only fellow humans, fellow, fellow clinicians around the world who were you know starting to, to see or feel that same need for that self-empowerment. To be, again, a collaborator, to have the support in the world. I mean, I run a a community membership now, which I think really highlights how important I know relationships and community are. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. Though, again, it's really highlighting and shifting that empowerment back to ourself that holds that wisdom and that whose responsibility it ultimately will be to show up in service of that change. Mm.
2: Mm. It's kind of funny because uh, in the Western world today, if we talk about why now, I mean, we have a wealth many of us that our grand, great-grandparents could never have been. We can go to the dentist without too much pain. We have food for the day. We yes. have a roof. We have warm and cold water. Everything that humanity wanted to have. And still there is like a, a feeling of emptiness How did we end up in this empty place? What's that a sign of?
1: I think there's emptiness, Maria. There's skyrocketing, continuing rates of what we want to call mental illness or diagnoses. I mean, health issues, if we really want to put it bluntly and simply, are going up (laughs) despite again... Mental health issues. All health issues, physical health issues, mental health issues. I think it's just going up at astronomical rates, though, to speak to your point. We do have conveniences and privileges and services, and some of us at least around abounding. Yet again, I think what we're what most of us are experiencing is that kind of undefinable breakdown, disconnection um, that I went through, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of space where yes, we might have things in our world, though, how connected are we to ourselves, to these experiences, or are most of us living from that extreme disconnection? And I think, again, Mm. because of early circumstances, because of generational parenting and theories about parenting that a lot of us who are now adults were raised with. I mean, I had parents who were from an early generation. They were born in the thirties where they were actually, there was a time in space where parents were not taught that children have emotional needs. It was mm-hmm. literally keep the child alive and, and that's sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons why we're experiencing emptiness and skyrocketing rates of mental, emotional, or physical illness. Um, but again, I think a lot of it goes back to generational patterns, shifts and changes. Again, even in the way that we're living, while it is so endlessly convenient for some of us, it also is quite unnatural a lot of ways those cities that i was describing that i know i lived in it's great to have you know friends that are living in the same building as you and food that can come to your door immediately though in terms of our nervous system that's really farly different from how we were wired growing up attached to the earth hunting Mm -hmm. and farming for our food Mm -hmm. of course growing up in, in within community but not living on top of each other as i know I have once lived, so a lot of different mm-hmm. factors. But again, universally, I do agree with you. We're feeling more and more disconnected. We're getting sicker and more emotionally unwell, um, and it's for all of these different reasons. So again, I'm I'm very hopeful. I know the um, incredible change and transformation that can happen because on the other side of all of this technological advances. Our new information, our new communities that are springing up virtually or in real life that are really going to, I believe, impact our future generations.
2: One of the big themes in in your book is the kind of traumas that we can have experienced. You've talked about a mother that wasn't sort of emotionally astute or, or there for you when you needed it. And I think everyone has had things, stuff going on in their childhood that was hard, tricky. Uh, what type of patterns can that set for the rest of us? And how does that make us ill
1: or so, empty? Yeah, I think trauma. And I appreciate um, us diving a bit into this because for a very long time, the field and, and myself, I had a very narrowed definition of what I was taught trauma could be um tra- trauma could be any kind of big incident of usually what's what's um offered is abuse physical sexual neglect um, having a parent who's severely mentally ill, incarcerated, or severely abusing substances. That's typically, historically at least, how trauma, trauma was defined. Meaning, if you check the box saying, that, yes, this thing happened to me in the mm. 90s, we have research that validated that that thing happening to you at any time well back into your childhood will carry impact, physical and psychological, well into your adulthood. For Mm. me, you know, reading this study, while it was incredibly helpful clinically on some level, it left me as an individual feeling really confused because Mm. I didn't check too many of of those boxes. I didn't have any Mm. memories of these really severe incidents or moments. Yet what I was seeing in myself was a lot of the same habits and patterns. And I had many clients who had a whole handful of those big T traumas as they were once called. Yet I was seeing the same habits and patterns in myself, the same tendency to be disconnected, dissociated. At Mm -hmm. times for me, it was abusing substances, using things to keep myself disconnected, Um, patterns in my relationships that weren't serving me. And I was hearing reports of all of the same thing from, again, people who experienced these big T traumas. So in seeking Mm -hmm. to understand, and as I think a lot of us clinically are doing in the field now, we're expanding the definition of trauma a bit. And we're saying, yes, that's part of it those big mm. overwhelming incidents, so are more consistent things that might've happened. And to speak to your point, like not having an emotionally attuned caregiver or not having a mm. family who allowed for emotions in general. How many of us or how many of you listening out there were in families who didn't show emotions or who actually would state, right? Don't don't cry, cryness is weakness. Or every time you know you cry or you're angry or you're shunned for it. Um, a lot of us were taught, right? Not not to, not to feel our emotions. Um, and yet emotions are an incredibly common experience of, of being human, or mm. we might not have had a parent who was equipped to help us handle those overwhelming emotions. And of course, this isn't the one time when your parent came home distracted from work and isn't able to be there you know, for their crying child from a bad day at school or a difficult day at school. This is when that parent was never really able to fully be there. And the mm. byproduct is a deep aloneness where those consistently big feelings of life events mm. actually create that same experience of trauma in the body. Because what trauma, in my definition of what trauma really is, is it's not necessarily the event. Trauma is more of a function of the impact that the event mm. has on me. So if I had mm. an attuned caregiver who's able to help me regulate myself or just calm down, if we really want to put it simply, when I'm upset. And if that happens consistently enough, right, I won't feel overwhelmed. I might not Hmm. have a traumatic experience because I always had someone helping my body regulate. If I didn't have that, my daily events will overwhelm my system and I might check out just like I did. And I was, again, the poster child mm, for mm. that more undefined. Right. So when I understood, okay, well, traumas is what happened to me. So these things in this environment that I lived within daily were so overwhelming for my developing nervous system mm. that now is explaining why I still had those trauma, those habits around the mm, trauma mm. that very much looked like those that those bigger events. Mm. Mm. Kind of a reflection. I've got
2: four kids. Uh, Nicola, I don't know if you have kids. Do you? I don't have children. No. No. So I'm kind of thinking, you know, a lot of, I mean, being a parent is hard <laughs> and you do your best. But when you are yourself, you know, uh, broken down or desperate or sad or angry or tired or fucked up, you know, it happens, uh, you know, you kind of start reflecting on what kind of traumas have my children succumbed to. Come to does this kind of thinking about trauma, does it put too much stress on parents to be the perfect parent? What what allowance are you giving for wobbly parenthood, which might happen?
1: Well, I love that wobbly parenthood. Well, I, I want to, you know, kind of first, while I, I can't, I cannot relate to, to how it is to have a, a child. And I do have the idea that most, if not all parents are are very well intentioned, maybe even are aware of how they were parented and the things that mm. you know might not have been as successful for them and that they would like to do different. However, again, this beautifully comes full circle. If all of those neural networks and habits, if I'm having trauma that's living in my body, that yeah. best intention Goes out the window when my autopilot takes over, when my reactivity comes to the surface, when something is activating that really deep wound that I didn't have a parent there for me to help. So I'm Mm going to fall into that reactivity. So my Mm -hmm. statement to parents, first and foremost, especially when I get asked for advice. Well, how do I help my child break this pattern? I know what happened to me and I know that I don't want this to happen to them. So what do I say or what do I do differently? And my answer is always some version of of the same, which I think can be a little bit frustrating for some of us to hear, which isn't the right thing to say or even the right thing to do in that moment. Mm -hmm. It's actually um, an invitation for the parent to begin to change the focus, not to their child and doing differently, to themselves, Mm -hmm. to how they can show up to Mm -hmm. be a more regulated, balanced, calm, Mm -hmm. safe human. So that in those moments, they can model for their child because the old saying as it goes is very, very true, right? It's like, do what I say, not what I do. Yeah. But in reality, what children will do is what you do, what they see Mm -hmm. you do and Mm -hmm. how they experience you to be more so than what you're saying. So my statement to to any parents out there listening is one of incredible compassion, is an invitation to begin to heal by looking at yourself first and the tools Mm -hmm. that you were given or not given by the generations that came before you, and maybe again holding compassion. That the chances that the chances are that you didn't get that tool or you didn't have that supportive parent because that parent, your parent, wasn't probably taught from their parents themselves. Mm-hmm. So being compassionate for where we are um, and learning how to show up and to take care of our needs as a parent is going to be, I think, the greatest impact for all of the children out there because they're watching and because as you become more regulated more safe more grounded more connected in your body then you're going to be translate that to your interactions with your child and to anyone out there who's worrying i don't know how old your children are maria but i know a next question is well my kids are already in their teens or their twenties or they're adults now um We have the ability, our brains, our bodies have the ability Mm. to change throughout life. So it is never too late. Um, even in my own family, there's a lot of old patterns and habits that many of us in my whole family system really has been repeat repeating for a lifetime that I'm going to be in my forties in a month that we are working to change within my family unit mm. with my parent and care and my siblings. So mm. never is too late change can happen anytime. And again, it's really beginning our own healing journey. Cause that's going to be the impact that we have on our children beautiful we we always in this podcast tend to end
2: up with Gandhi
1: be the change you want to see
2: yeah. uh, which is is beautiful you you've kind of expanded on that in a beautiful way so you talked a lot about diagnosis when we go to the doctor when we are sick and um, you believe that sometimes a diagnosis can sort of make us weaker this is in a way a highly controversial statement i'm thinking of the way doctors are trained in the western world where they spend five years you know making diagnosis that is what they are trained in identifying sickness and making diagnosis and after that um, creating a program for healing or for treatment so so what is your line of thought about how, how a
1: diagnosis can somehow make us lose strength? I think, and to speak to your point, I mean, a significant part, part of my clinical training was to do just that, to understand hmm. the different ever-expanding diagnoses. Every time our manual um, is called the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and it comes out every different every couple of years. And every time it comes out, there's a whole handful, usually of new diagnoses in there. So a big part of the training is to know the different symptoms or boxes that we need to check to fit into the different categories of diagnosis. Again, to speak to your point with the hope that that will inform treatment or what happens next, ultimately. I think a lot of us, let's talk about the positive. If we don't have an understanding of what's happening, if we feel like, you know, something's wrong or we're broken inside, or, you know, we don't have language to to define or to describe what we're experiencing. And if we feel very alone in it, we think that we're the only ones that's happening to when we receive that diagnosis, the language, the ability to understand, oh, our symptoms are, these all symptoms are going together because it's hanging under this category of depression or of anxiety. And, oh, wow, there's a whole group and maybe even a community of other individuals who have this same experience. I can feel less alone, all of that. And that might speak to a lot of you listening or be part of your journey can be very helpful. I think where diagnosis is, can become unhelpful is when we associate the diagnosis with who we are completely. We mm. don't become a person who's struggling with depression or anxiety, mm. we become mm. a depressed person.
2: Yeah, an Excellent. anxious
1: mm. person, right? And then when we wear that as who we are, we give ourselves very limited possibility to be anything else, to have a day where we're not mm a depressed person, um, or to honor any other of our experiences outside of that diagnosis. I think another way it could become problematic.
2: But, but can I, can I just interject? Because I yes. think your point is super important here. It's very interesting. You know, if we have backache and we go to the doctor and we get a kind of diagnosis, what's it all about? It's about the lumbar region, etc. We don't become back ache person. We become a person who has problems with the back. But when it comes to mental problems, depression, anxiety, uh, bipolar, etc., we become that diagnosis.
1: Isn't that weird? Yes. And I think one of the reasons is, is what we've been taught or led to believe is the cause of the diagnosis, whatever it might be. Mm. And to keep it really simply, we've come from a medical model and a psychological in the field uh, model of something that's called genetic determinism, which really just simply means it's in my genetics. Mm. I get depression because I have that chip that gives people depression. I get heart disease because I have that genetic component of heart disease. And again, I don't have any choice or control, meaning it's almost like I'm a ticking time palm. It's just a matter of time when I'm going to get those symptoms and have that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So if we believe that, then we are locating the problem within us. I am a depressed person because I, I have a depression chip. I have the genetics for depression. Um, and I think that allows us then to, you know, kind of merge with that identity because it is something genetic, or so we think it's something that is in our genetic constitution or our genetic makeup. We now know science has very thankfully evolved, um, quite a lot in a very, groundbreaking transformational way. Um, And now we, there is a science, a model of science out there that's called epigenetics. And I have the idea that probably listeners have heard of this, which is simply, it does understand that genetics and our DNA and all that's in our physiology absolutely play a role though. So does our environment. So does our lifestyle choices, right? All of that interacts so now, if we understand mental illness or diagnosis, whatever it is, as a symptom, right, of not only our genetics, but all of the choices that our genetics have contributed to us making or having been made for us in our environment, now we can separate ourselves, right? Now we don't have to assign the label of, well, I'm an anxious human because I have an anxious genetic chip my genetics in interaction with my environment that are also included my relationships and going back to that mom who was not Mm. able to be there for me. She played a role in right. My manifestation of anxiety with that space though, in my, in my opinion can be transformational, can be the life that we now create because now it's not, we're not bound by this thing that I can't change these genetics that I have no control Mm. over. What I can do is begin to make new choices, which can allow that separation to grow even more to the extent that we can maybe become someone. I mean, I had a list of diagnoses. I had um, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, obsess- obsessive compulsive personality disorder, all the disorders. And at this point, because I've made so many conscious efforts to change, to heal my body, to regulate mm. my nervous system, I wouldn't even probably check the boxes for those diagnoses at all. Hmm. Mm. It's
2: interesting. I'm a trained geneticist and I find this whole area of, of uh, epigenetics fascinating. I always like to think of it as, you know, we have a piano, so we have all the different keys, but what tune is going to be played on those keys? Is it our best tune? Is it our anxious tune? Is it our depressed? I mean, there, that's epigenetics. That can be influenced a lot. So those those foundations are, are super, super interesting. Uh, and, um, what you are saying is that a diagnosis can be a great tool for helping somebody find a first path, but it it shouldn't define us as human beings
1: is do I understand you correctly? Yes, it shouldn't define us, and my hope is that it shouldn't also it could not limit us to we could find the possibility that even if we are with, we are someone who has been identifying with the label Mm. um, who has felt like I am anxiety. um, My hope is that this might just open up a door a little bit of Mm. possibility that Mm. with consistent new daily choices, and of course, incorporating our body, because for a lot of us, those diagnoses are the result of a a physiological and imbalance in our nervous system, in our, in our physiology. And if we do incorporate our body in here, Feeling we might be able to see the possibility of, of not being then limited by always being the anxious person throughout our life. We can play a different tune on our piano. We can play a different tune. I mm-hmm. love that. And I just like to highlight too, when we think about environments, it In my opinion, it begins with that earliest environment Mm -hmm. when we were in utero, right? So really considering, well, how was it for, you know, the, the parent who birthed you, what was Mm -hmm. their life like? What circumstances were they living in? What context were they living in? What was it, what was going on for them? Because Mm -hmm. if they were living in a highly stressed out or abusive or systematically oppressive environment, our genetic changes, our epigenetic changes are going to begin before we're even separate from that individual in this world.
4: Mm -hmm. And this is
1: again, why it looks so similar going back to why I, for me, I could look and see the same physical issues that I described earlier, the digestion, Mm. the sleep, the anxiety, the habits and patterns in relationship. They were all present in my mom, in my sister. And again, not Mm. because we're partially because we're genetically, Mm. you know, I near Mm. each other in Mm. relation Mm. though, Mm. more so in my opinion, because our environments had been the same.
2: Mm. You talk in your book about the monkey tree within us, the chattering minds. And Buddha, of course, this this comes from Buddha. It's beautiful. The idea that we have all these conflicting. We have a tree of monkeys in us and they're chattering. You should do this. Don't do that. You're lousy. You should be doing your laundry. You know, we're never kind of here and now in that monkey tree. What does this mean to us to have this tree within us? Well,
1: first it means that we're a normal human because I have yet <laughs> yeah, to that's a good idea. in this world who doesn't have thoughts happening throughout their mind. All day long. And I'm being very intentional in the way I'm describing it by describing it as thoughts happening. Yeah. Um, because the issue, or we can create an issue for ourselves if we merge with our thoughts, if we come to believe that that spirit, that essence, that uniqueness that I was describing earlier that makes each of us us, if we locate that in our mind and think that the thoughts define who the thoughts that we're having define who we are, um, then we can cause ourselves a lot of issue when we mm. can really understand that we're the witnesser of the thoughts we're the person who can hear or experience mm. our thoughts um, if we can locate ourselves in that state of consciousness, um, then we can begin to navigate those endless thoughts throughout our day. Because I, mm-hmm. I see and I hear a lot of people thinking whenever the word meditation is brought up or consciousness or, you know, whatever it might be, I think people put an unrealistic expectation on themselves that the goal is to shut down those thoughts and never have a thought. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we can't, Our brain is what is referred to as a meaning seeker. It's always thinking. It's always trying to make sense of the world around us. Again, all based in our survival. If I can assess really quickly what's happening in two main ways, is this safe or unsafe? The quicker I can do that. So I've had to make meaning. Is this a a threatening event or is this a safe event? Then I can increase the likelihood of my survival. So this expectation that we're going to just be thought free is, is really, really unrealistic. What we mm. can do though, because most of us, the only time we're spending with ourselves is in our thoughts. I like to think of it as um, kind of having a balloon and we're holding a balloon and I'm like mm. living from my balloon up yeah. here. If we can return our attention to that consciousness state, really learn how to be the observer of our thoughts, um, that's really the work of what we're doing because that mm. consciousness state actually exists In our brain. Um, it's a it's a different way that our brain then fires. And I'm sharing that because the more we fire that region, like we were talking about earlier, firing Mm -hmm. together, wiring together, while it is incredibly difficult in the beginning to even be present with our thoughts. This is Mm -hmm. why a lot of us, myself included, didn't create a sitting meditation practice when I discovered how beneficial meditation could be Mm, mm. because for me, sitting was so overwhelming. Being present to those endless thoughts was really stressful, Mm -hmm. but the more we can practice creating separation in small ways, the more, again, we're actually retraining our brain at the Mm -hmm. neurological level, and it'll get easier um, over time to discover that separation. We have our childhood traumas, we have our genetic piano, uh,
2: we have the monkey mind within us, you know, that's us human beings. So, how do we kind of start reprogramming ourselves to be, live a more authentic life and more in tune with what we want our life to be like and don't go on autopilot all the time? You'd, talked about the here and now, you talked about meditation, grounding yourself in the morning. What other tools do we have?
1: Consciousness is the number one Mm. foundation, meaning learning how to tune into here and now, not to pay attention from my balloon, from my thoughts, how to ground myself um, in my body. And like I was sharing, for me, it didn't begin by creating a a time in my morning where I just sat in meditation. Mm. Um, For me, it began setting the commitment or the intention that when I was doing say that stretching that I was sharing about earlier, the, the walk around the block that I do that consciously, meaning I tune into what I was sharing earlier, how it feels to be in my body in that moment, that other parts of my day, I, I endorse using technology as much as we can. In the beginning, I would set an alarm on my phone for several times during my waking day. So say one is at 1 PM and one is at 4 PM. And when that alarm goes off, I would do what I call a consciousness check-in, which really simply the first step is where am I? What am I paying attention to, right? I might be sitting at my computer intending to, you know, create something new, Mm -hmm. but I'm really thinking about the argument I had with my partner this morning, right? So my attention is in my mind. I'm not, we could say conscious. In that moment, I'm on autopilot because chances are I spent a lot of time in my mind, possibly even rehashing earlier issues, right? So second part is the embodiment practice. Now that I'm aware, oh, okay, I'm, I wasn't present when this alarm went off. I was somewhere else. I wasn't in my chair, present to my work or whatever it is that I'm doing. Now I give myself that opportunity to practice being present. So we, we can use, I call it a hook For our attention. So we can do a couple different things. The two simple ones is first by using our breath. We're going to be breathing in that moment. We're always breathing. So when I notice my attention is up in my balloon, I might just refocus and hook my attention onto the natural breath. That's going through my body, just Mm -hmm. paying attention to right. How it feels when my stomach or my chest inflates and then how it feels when it deflates. And I might just do that for a minute Becoming conscious to my body, I could also use my senses. If the breath feels like a more difficult hook, we can tune into and ask ourselves the question of going through our five senses. Is there anything in this room that I can smell right now? Maybe I have some um, incense on. Is there any sound happening? Am I watching a video? Is that was mm-hmm. playing in front of me? Is there light music? Do I hear the yard workers in the house next door? Right. Same thing goes. Can I touch anything? Can I taste anything? Is there a drink that I was, you know, just guzzling down? Can I actually take a moment and be with that, the taste of, of that product or whatever it is. So hooking our attention on what's happening. We could use our breath. We can use the sensory experience. And every time we're doing that, we're in that moment, practicing being conscious. Now I'm in my body that's sitting on my chair, I'm feeling how it feels Mm. to be breathing Mm. in this body, and I'm feeling how it is to be in the sensory experience of this present moment. And that, in my opinion, is the foundation in which change is built, meaning we need to practice that consciousness state as much as we can. It's not enough to say, oh, I've become conscious for this one moment, and now I'm done until the next Mm. time the Mm. alarm goes off, Mm. because what's going to happen in that three-hour period Is all of the autopilot that you're probably trying to avoid so it's the foundation that we want to keep building on to the extent that we're not going to be conscious every moment of every day we might drift off in thought or zone out for a few minutes here and there however i can detect it i can notice when i'm doing it or i can notice when i come to and then i can give myself the choice What we're really going for is choice in all of these moments, because our autopilots have been making all the choices for us. Mm -hmm. Typically, they're not getting us the life that we're intending. Typically, they're not true.
2: I was fascinated in the book to learn. uh, I mean, I, I, of course, learned a lot about the vagal nerve uh, and how it activates the parasympathetic nerve system, parasympathic nerve system. And I was fascinated to also learn that it actually affects the voice quality and the hearing quality. So, in in the podcast, we usually call it our inner panda, the parasympathetic nerve system, and the sympathetic we call the squirrel. So, we're kind of when we go in panda mode, we communicate better, we listen better. It's kind of our whole being changes into a more I would say, reflective and responsible person.
1: Isn't that the case? Absolutely. So the really simplify it, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system are responsible for keeping ourselves safe under threat, Mm. right? When we're threatened, the sympathetic, and I'm really simplifying it, swoops in, we fight, we flee, and then we're safe. And then ideally we go back in to that parasympathetic nervous system because our body is safe and we can be Open to connection, to connecting with the world, to connecting with other people, to cooperating. When we're in fight or flight, we don't, it's almost as if we don't see other humans around us because our only focus in that moment is survival.
2: Tunnel vision, tunnel vision. You go tunnel vision. Our eyes do. Our
1: Mm. eyes narrow focus. So when we're feeling safe, right, we can look out. We have full view of the periphery or the horizon, as they call it. Even sometimes doing, being intentional. If we're looking down at a screen for too long, when we are, when our focus narrows, when we think we hear a threat, oh, we hear a, a bang over here. Right. My eyes are going to dart and they're going to narrow to find what the threat is. Our eyes go in. I think a lot about how we're on our phones all day, Mm -hmm. naturally Mm -hmm. putting our eyes in that very threat inducing state. And so because there's an actual part of our brain, a region that is constantly Mm -hmm. scanning our environment, it's called interoception. I call it inner sensing Mm -hmm. and it's taking cues from our eyes. From mm-hmm. our breath, is it shallow? Is it getting right. elevated? Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's assessing the sensory changes. Are my muscles becoming tense? Mm-hmm. Am I starting to sweat? And if my brain detects that, the message that's going to be sent from my body is, well, that's all happening because there's a, a threat, mm-hmm. right? So now I'm going to be primed and looking for that threat. And all of that happens in our eyes. So I think a lot about all of the different ways that we're relating in the world. And when we're in that threat, again, think about if we don't really wanna simplify it. um, Squirrel, right? Is it squirrels, is the sympathetic threat? We're in competition Mm -hmm. with someone. When we're in Panda or we're safe in the parasympathetic where we can be in cooperation with Mm -hmm. someone. So flash forward into practical conversation, This is why when we're activated, when we're triggered, right, when we're Mm. feeling really threatened and we're screaming and we're yelling, this is Mm. why a lot of us can become really hurtful because Mm. that person in front of you that you love so dearly, dearly, when you're conscious, when you're in panda mode, when you're feeling safe and cooperative Mm. and connected Mm. with them becomes a mortal enemy that Mm. becomes possibly at times even the threat causing that activation in your body so that's when we do see competition we see meanness we see tearing other people down because in a very real way neurologically we can't cooperate with that person in that Mm -hmm. moment interesting
2: it's a beautiful I'm, i'm getting kind of the image that the panda allows for perspective on our lives whereas when we're in the squirrel we don't have any perspective we are like in in our monkey tree we are like in our w- would you
1: agree with that 100 when when perspective um long-term planning mm. consequential thinking all of yeah. that is a in. byproduct of being in the in the panda mode in. immediacy yeah. Yeah. right the the threat at hand yeah doesn't matter what happens next mm. all i need to do is get through this threatening moment now all of that is really in the squirrel mode
2: Okay, so one of the things that um, stresses me out most, and I think a lot of human beings, actually a lot of women, is boundaries. The little world no <laughs> can be very stressful, especially if you have to say no to people who need you, who sometimes use you, and who love getting things from you. And you talk a lot about this. And if anyone has any problems with boundary setting, I highly recommend your book. You have three definitions of how we define ourselves in relation to others. And you talk about the rigid boundary setter, the loose boundary setter, and the flexible boundary setter. What can these three strategies do to us? And where should we strive to be?
1: So simply defined, um, a boundary is a limit, a mark of separation mm. between me and my thoughts, my feelings, my ways of being in the world and anyone else um, that's, that's really outside of me. So just to get clear on what a, a boundary even is, because I know that I was never, I didn't have any in my family. So I wasn't modeled them, meaning there was no separation or they were called loose boundaries, meaning there was merger. If one person was stressed out in my family home or there was an issue one person was having, the whole family very quickly became stressed out. Um, We were very much a family of group think or this kind of idea that my last name is LaPera. So us LaPera's think or believe these things and we don't think or believe these other things as if Mm -hmm. there's this homogenous group or similarity and we all must have the same beliefs. Um, So that's an example of having loose or no boundaries where there's Mm. no separation, where everyone's emotions affect or impact us. And oftentimes where we do find ourselves showing up in service of others, um, usually overstepping our own needs, meaning we might not be available or have the time to answer a phone call in the middle of the night, yet here we are picking up that phone. And again, Mm. all of this is based in our earliest relationships, our earliest environments, how we had to adapt in those early circumstances Mm -hmm. to continue to stay connected with that environment Um, and again this begins in childhood so when we think about boundaries many of us want to begin to define new limits or create new space for ourselves the contrast of loose boundaries so when i have no limits Mm -hmm. um, what other people do affect me and i affect other people again all learned based on our past experiences the alternate of that would be what I call rigid boundaries or having so much separation that there can't be really any contact or points of connection. This could look like what we call a hyper-individualized person or I don't need anyone. I'm on my own island. I don't need anyone to do anything for me. I am completely self-sufficient. I don't share my thoughts or my feelings with you because I don't quite honestly care what you think or what you say about them. I have no real connection. So we could think of those as like, walls. There's a complete (laughs) wall between me and the world. And that's cutting us off from the interconnectedness that I I believe defines our existence. We are connected to the natural world. We do need relationships to not only survive, but to thrive. And when we completely wall ourselves off with these two rigid boundaries, we're keeping out any possibility of connection. Of course, again, all of this goes back to those earliest relationships where maybe Mm. that connection was overwhelming maybe Mm. that's where the trauma occurred having a parent who micromanaged or who you know busted into your room or read your diaries I mean sometimes it's these emotional boundary violations that translate into you know what I'm not ever gonna let anyone in Mm. to Mm -hmm. my in my emotional world at all and so what we're looking first it's of course self-assessment Everyone who's listening can ask themselves or go explore. Do you have limits? Are you able to say no? Are you able to identify what your need or your thought or your feeling might be in any circumstance that might be different from what someone else is experiencing? Or do you look to other people to tell you how to feel? Or do you not even look to other people at all because you're so walled off? The goal, of course, is develop that flexible range, Mm -hmm. Um, the ability to be context specific sometimes and determine, you know, what I need in that moment. Also considering other people and the relationship and the connection, but we can be flexible. We can negotiate, we can modify, and we can only do that when we have that separation, meaning when we can identify what it is that we want or we need and then give ourselves the opportunity to actualize on that.
2: And what I love about your book, I mean, this you spend a lot of time around boundaries, is that you have such concrete examples. You tell me and everyone else what you exactly say when you have boundary problems. You are very concrete. Uh, so you give very specific help. And you have a very fascinating chapter on emotional dumping. And I think everybody has experienced... Uh, so I happen to be a person that a lot of people come to and... I get to hear a lot, and sometimes it's valid. And sometimes I feel like, hey, I'm sitting here and I'm a bit of a garbage can <laughs> for things that are happening. Uh, and you talk about what to do if you are a dumper and what to do if you are being dumped on. Uh, and I love, could you share some of those strategies? Because I think that will resonate with a few people
1: as a recovering on the other side, I would have called you up many times. Maria as a recovering <laughs> emotional dumper uh, myself. Um, what emotional dumping is. And of course this, this understanding that emotions and emotional support and having that connection is part of our relationships, meaning feeling supported, sharing our experiences, maybe just going to someone for them to hold space or maybe mm. offer suggestions. Yeah. All of that is part of a healthy Emotional relationship. What emotional dumping looks like um, is being the relationship where that's all that happens, right? For me, that looked like being the person who was always calling the friend when I had an argument with my partner, or you know, I didn't like the way something was going on going in my life, and I. Wouldn't A, ask if they had space, wouldn't check in with where they're at. Um, before really long, the whole relationship mm-hmm. itself was an exchange of this dumping, meaning I would call up and complain and stress and, you know, bitch about what was happening and just not really looking for support, not really mm-hmm. giving them the opportunity to be there for me, just dumping quite mm-hmm. literally on them and for Mm. me again this began very early on where there wasn't that deep attuned emotional connection there weren't two humans who were bringing their emotions into relationships again there was a lot of complaining a lot of sharing of stress you know coming home and stating how stressful the day was and that's Mm. why that you know kind of stress contagion the dominoes like i talked about Mm. we all had one feeling and Mm. it's understandable because if mom or dad came home from a band-aid stressed out And we're talking about it or dumping that into the family before long, the whole family is stressed out. Mm -hmm. So understanding again, whether or not you're on the side of, I am the person who's always calling people with endless issues. And I never (laughs) check in with them. I never ask how they're doing. I don't create any space for them. Or maybe you're on the side you are or were once on of, I'm the person who's always on the receiving end of it. Again, understanding that that's different then that collaborative, that mutual exchange of support, mm. and some strategies are a always identifying the awareness. Oh, I am that person, mm. giving yourself the opportunity the next time. For me, when I was going to call up that friend and complain about what happened, do I really want to do that right now? Right? Can I take this, or can I do something else with my emotions? Or if I do choose to make that call. Can I take a moment to check in? And say, hey, you know, mm-hmm. friend, whatever your name might be. Mm-hmm. Are you available right now? I have something I want to get off my mind or off my chest. I would just like you to listen or I would like you to provide some suggestions. Sometimes it's just checking in, giving them an opportunity. And then if the answer is, you know what, I'm I'm not, now's not a really great time. I'm in the middle of something myself, allowing that to be okay too. And of course, if you're on the receiving end, that might be checking in with yourself. If you get that call from that dumper and you probably anticipate how this is going to go, maybe making the decision not to pick up the phone or not to be available or to voice to that person that you're not available in this moment, maybe you can call them back later. Hmm
2: wise i've I've found that the feeling of energy low or high energy after a conversation is a very good indicator because also you want to share uh, emotions with people you love and if it's a good exchange you feel energetic after and real and if it's not a good exchange you feel very low and exhausted isn't that a good
1: indicator of where the balance was I think energy, Maria, is a great indicator of 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 a guidance. Mm. The more we can attune to how we feel, and we can really simplify it mm. into, like you're saying, h- low energy. Do I feel like stagnant, down, mm. depressed, mm. even heavy? Right. All of that might be constricted, scared, upset, agitated, right? Or do I feel exhilarated, mm. alive? You know, mm. connected fed, replenished um, by, by energy. And we can apply this to everything outside of even relationships. How do I feel when I'm scrolling on my phone? Mm -hmm. Right. Do I always kind of go to that doomsday Mm -hmm. website and leave Mm -hmm. feeling all upset and constricted and like heavy? Um, You know, I can use my energy. And again, all this goes back to what we've been talking about all along, tuning into my body, Mm -hmm. learning my body's different states of energy. So that then I could use that in real time for guidance. And I can make choices to limit my exposure to things that constrict me or bring me down or make me feel so heavy and spend more time with people or spaces or environments that make me feel expanded and free and creative and alive.
2: Hmm. I think this expanded full of life replenished that is, uh, a true sign of your book because that's what you feel like when you've read that book that things are possible to change and um, for all our listeners, lägg dig in Swedish if they want to follow you, if they want to find
1: out more about you, where can they find you if they don't want to go to Arizona. Well, I appreciate that. And, and hearing hearing you describe it like that, um, Maria, really, really means a lot. Um, I know I was a person who didn't feel so hopeful, who really felt constrained mm-hmm. by limitation in, in many different ways and areas of my life for so long. And you know, hearing that the book itself and the work can be a beacon of, of hope and of possibility, because I would have fought you tooth and nail that thriving was part of the human existence back when I started that, Mm. that that Mm. descent into what we were talking about Mm. earlier, my breakdown, Mm. I would have told you there's no thriving, it's barely making it through the day, barely making it through the week, who likes to work anyway, this is life. Mm. Um, So hearing again, and obviously, I don't believe that now I do see a possibility of thriving for all of us um, in our lives. So hearing that that translate really, really is everything. And the place you can find me um, where I am on day in and day out is social media, um, the Instagram account, the.holistic.psychologist. I have a website that also has a bunch of resources on there, theholisticpsychologist.com. I have a new podcast out called Self Healer Soundboard. Um, So come find me in any and all of those areas for all of the different ways that we talk about and continue to talk about this healing journey and for the amazing community of self healers that's such a big part um, of my social media presence and the platform in, in general in and of itself is finding those people that are speaking this language that are having similar experiences and creating those authentic supportive relationships beautiful thank you very much truly honored maria karina thank you thank you both for your time i so appreciate you
3: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?
4: Karina, tack för att
2: du hittade den här boken. Hon är ju helt fantastisk, alltså så jäkla spännande och nytänkande. Ja, ja, nej, men det här är ju en bok jag hade velat ge ut på
0: mitt eget förlag. Nu, nu har jag ju eh, jobbat eh, inte inte liksom fulltid med det, så att, det, så att jag eh, gratulerar det, det, det svenska förlag Mondial som ger ut den här fantastiska mm. boken. Det, det är verkligen, ja, den är den är fantastisk. Och vi känner ju flera som har blivit eh, hjälpta ja. av 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 den här boken och, och om man inte liksom känner att man har ja massa traumatiskt så så kan man nog ändå hitta tror jag vardagsknep. Det är ju inte det att man måste vara fullständigt trasig för att läka sig själv utan jag tror vi måste läka oss själva lite ja. varje dag och jag tar verkligen med 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 det här med. alltså att det här är ju alltså mindfulness 2.0 tycker jag nästan för det är mer Man får mer vetenskap, ännu mer sammanhang. Mm. Och att konnekta med sig själv. Och känna hur, ja, hur känns det här, är detta liksom... Och sen och, och får man väl prova sig fram. Man, man kan ju inte gå runt och, och utvärdera varenda steg man tar mm. heller, mm. tror jag. Utan man måste ju få, mm. få leva. Mm. Liksom. Men, ja. Det som jag, det som Nej, det, jag
2: tänkte liksom innan, det var ju... Så den enda oron jag hade det var att hon skulle vara helt emot diagnoser. För jag ser ju ändå hur mm, systematiska ja. diagnoser från bra läkare, psykiater och så vidare har lett till mm. empiriskt grundade behandlingar. Med liksom, och, och jag vet. Så det ska man ha en jäkla respekt för. Men jag tycker hon svarade väldigt bra att man kan få hjälp av diagnoser men man är inte sen diagnos. Ja hon hade väldigt Nej. klok
0: och där tänker jag ju verkligen och där tänker jag ju på min kära ja. man som ju var precis en sån ledstjärna när det gällde eh, och det var ju då kancer som som många av lyssnarna vet och Anders sa ju han delade ju det i ett i ett avsnitt om hur han hanterade ja, sin ja. sjukdom och han hade ju ett mantra jag är inte Nej. min sjukdom och det kom så liksom reflexmässigt mm. för Anders när när han fick mm. sin diagnos då Så jag tror att det gäller både psykisk ohälsa i olika former men också kanske allvarligare diagnoser där man då kan bli sin cancer eller bli sin, vad vet jag, hjärtinfarkt eller eller stroke eller vad man har råkat ut för.
2: De psykiatriska diagnoserna är de mest dödliga idag för unga människor, så bara att man kommer ihåg, men man är inte anorektiker. Man har anorexia. Man är inte ja, deprimerad, ja. man har depression. Man är inte cancer, man har mm. det. Alltså, och det, det är en väldigt, väldigt klok ja. distinktion. Och det här, eh, en väninna till mig som um, hade cancer, hon sa också väldigt klokt att till slut är det ändå jag mm. som måste läka mig själv. Ja, läkaren är en Exakt. hjälpare, men det är jag mm. som måste ta pillret. Det är jag mm. som måste lägga mig i den här strålpillret maskinen det är jag min kropp ja. som ska läka ihop efter operationen så att man är man ja. är samverkande ja, det är. i det här och så hon har en och så är det naturvetenskapligt grundat det hon skriver och hon talar ju mycket om ja, ja jag tänker mycket på ayurveda när hon alltså, jag skulle vilja höra henne mm. prata med en ayurvedaläkare men men du där ja. med med gränssättning ja. och så där är det bara jag som har problem med det eller mm. Det känns som att
4: <laughs>
0: nej alltså nej men herregud det är ju varje dag nej, nej, vi och vi har ja, ett kapitel avsnitt om det också som vi ju eh, sände släppte i sommarrepris här eh, ganska nyligen och, och det det är ju jättesvårt. svårt. Nej men det man vill vara tillgänglig för sina nära och kära man vill hjälpa till hela tiden men men det går mm. ju inte liksom. Så det, det 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 är jätte svårt. Man får prova sig fram. Och och känna efter och Ja, det det är klart att vi ska finnas där för för varandra. Men inte 24-7. Du ska inte alltid plocka upp telefonen och svara- Man, man, man gör ju det Nej, med barn. Det är barn. väldigt bra. Men man kan inte Nej. göra det med Nej. alla vänner.
2: Nej. Så Nej. det där är väldigt bra. Och den här muren och sen det här lösa gränsen. Det är någon slags vatten där allting bara flyter ihop. Och jag såg mm. framför mig egentligen att hon talade om den här flexibla gränssättningen. att Man är i någon slags vatten men mm. man har en ordentlig hinna mot. Så man är, känner av ja. vågorna men man behöver inte vara dem så att säga.
0: Nej men då, även till barnen kan man ju säga att du är precis mitt uppe i någonting nu kan vi ja. höra som to- Alltså herregud, det, det går ju för det mesta. Det är ju inte alltid det akut även om det kan låta som
2: att ja. det är nu nu nu. Så. Men alltså det mm. finns så mycket härligt klokt och... Ja.
0: Äm... Jag älskar när vi får in också ja, internationella det är stjärngäster och liksom får vi vidgar samtalet till ja, men just liksom, rörelser, movement som, som mm. pågår i... En stor mm. del av världen och, och ja, det, det är
2: hälsorevolutionen ja, I, I stora ja, världen, ja. det är väl härligt? Jag, jag har ju alltid känt liksom att eh, borta på västkusten i USA, det är en energi där ja. och jag vet inte om det är mötet mellan liksom Asien och, och, och på något sätt de västerländska världen som ju är en förlängning av, mm. det har alltid varit, det, det är ingen slump att det kommer så mycket grejer från tror du det?
0: Nej, 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 jag har ju haft förmånen, ja. precis som du, att vara I, I, I Kalifornien en del. Och, och Arizona, där då eh, doktor Nicole bor, det, och jag, och jag bara kände direkt när hon sa det. Jag bara, ja. Oh, jag är lokalist, ja, men det måste vi göra. Är, det är ö, öknen, ja. värmen, och det är liksom någon mer, ännu mer avslappnad. Inte lika mycket mm, prestation mm. Och, och, och inte samma tempo, mm. föreställer jag mig. Jag vet inte, men... men eh, Så det, ja, hon väckte mycket ja, verkligen. nyfikenhet. Verkligen. Verkligen.
2: Ja, mm. eh, det här är Hälsorevolutionen som du har lyssnat till. Specialavsnitt med doktor Nicole. Och, eh, mm. Om du har önskemål om saker som du längtar efter att höra mer. Om det var några trådar kanske i det här programmet som du kände att där resonerade med mig. Kan vi prata lite mer om det kanske. Jag slår mig att epigenetik och vagusnerver är saker som jag är väldigt intresserad av. Det kan komma upp. Tidigare, tidigare ja. senare här till exempel. Mycket bra, mycket bra. bra, mycket ja. bra och så får du vara rädd om dig och följ oss gärna på Instagram och där finns vi på. Vi heter
0: Halsrevolutionen understreck podcast och vi är i detta nu, eh, jag tror att vi precis har blivit 5000 i vår lilla movement. Ja, i
2: vår lilla movement, eh, mm.
0: Vårt Instagram-konto har inte funnits så länge. Lyssnare är vi ju ännu fler. Vi har ju förmånen att ha över 100 000. Mellan 100 och 150 000 medladdningar i månaden. Wow. Det är fantastiskt. Måste ja, men
1: bara säga det fantastiskt. Tack alla ja.
2: som tar tid. Värdefull tid. Vi vet hur mycket ni tack. har att göra. Hur många tack. saker ni bryr er om. Och vi är privilegierade att ni vill dela, dela er värdefulla tid med oss. Ja. Var reda om dig. då. Hej då.